Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Real Lives Untold podcast with myself, Trina O'Connor. And myself, Sarah O'Connor. We are focusing on all things crime and human interest. We're creating a space for people to tell their stories, the raw, unedited version. On Real Lives Untold today, we speak to Alva Griffith, who at the age of 21 was subjected to a horrific sexual assault as she made her way home from working a night shift in Dublin City in the early hours of the morning. Her attacker was caught, arrested and pleaded guilty to aggravated sexual assault for which he was jailed for nine years. Justice was seen to be served, but Alva's ordeal didn't end there. She continued to be hugely traumatised by what happened. She decided she wanted to meet her attacker as part of a powerful restorative justice journey. Alva Griffith, thanks so much for being with us today. We followed your restorative justice journey um, and a powerful one it really has been. If you could maybe start from the beginning, um, back in the early hours of that 2005 uh, night when you were coming home from a, a late shift in a bar or restaurant you were working in in town after, I think you were on holidays or you were, it was summer holidays after your degree. Yes, right, exactly, yeah. So I, I actually just finished um, my degree in college and I was um, just working in a bar in town, a typical kind of a college experience. Um, and I used to kind of travel home late at night on public transport. Um, that was something I did, something a lot of, um, you know, uh, people I knew did, females. Um, so it was kind of part of my normal um, experience. And after a couple of weeks of doing that, um, one particular night, um, I was coming home. Everything had been normal up until, you know, um, the very kind of end period when I was I was coming home. Um, and I used to get the nightmare home um, on the bus. Um, and one night I got on the bus and um, I just sat down um, and I noticed uh, a man got on the bus and he kind of up where the driver was, so to speak, and he, he was looking down my direction. Um, and he came and he sat down right beside me. Um, now I've kind of mentioned uh, before, like it, it's kind of an experience lots of women have where they kind of get this strange sense, you know, um, mm. it's kind of like a sixth sense or whatever, um, you know, that something's a little bit not right or whatever, but I kind of just put it to the side. Um, the whole journey was about kind of 40 minutes home to where I actually got off the bus and then you know, my bus stop. Um, and during that period, you know, he was kind of looking in my direction, but actually said nothing to me the whole period, you know. Um, so I got up to get off. I had to walk by him. 
And um, just as I was getting off the bus, I kind of heard um, the sound of somebody kind of almost running up the, the middle of the, the passageway um, after me. Uh, and then I got off the bus and um, pretty much immediately I kind of began to feel a little bit unsettled and nervous. Uh, and I didn't even exactly know why. Um, so I crossed over to the other side of the road because I was going into the state where I live. And the whole, like, you know, the, the period that I got off the bus to my door was like a couple of minutes walk, like no more than four minutes, you know. So mm -hmm. um, I had assumed I was pretty safe. Yeah. Um, and uh, I noticed that the person kind of walking parallel on the other side of the road um, to me was the same person that had been sitting beside me on the bus. So obviously my alarm bell started to ring. Um, but I, I think at that point, I just kind of slowed down to see where it's going. Um, and, you know, he kind of was walking then a little bit ahead of me. And then I got to the point where I just had to turn into the stage where I lived. And I, um, I kind of heard him kind of turning as well. So it was at that point that I turned around and I remember looking and he was looking directly at me. So, you know, I, I remember feeling the, the blood kind of go from the top of my head all the way down to my feet. It was like something I'd never experienced before, kind of a, a rush of whatever adrenaline probably. Um, so I think I kind of stood still for a minute and then also simultaneously began to run, if you can if you can do that. Um, and he kind of ran up after me and uh, he at that point kind of grabbed me around the neck and put his arm around my face and um, kind of was obviously threatening me at that point to, to be quiet and that kind of thing. Uh, I was just, I think I was just overcome with shock. I, I really cannot describe that level of shock. You know, it's, it's kind of, um, for some people it's not paralyzing, but for me it was. Mm -hmm. It's just the terror know, must have been. Terror and absolute shock and disbelief. I mean, I literally could not believe it. Um, and, um, and so anyway, he kind of dragged me around for a bit and finally um, dragged me into kind of the a front, a front garden kind of in the state where I lived that kind of was a bit dark and it had kind of bushes around it and stuff um, and then for the next it, I've never known exactly how long the period was but it, it must have been around 20 to 25 minutes maybe even a little bit more um, you know he um, basically very violently um, ordered me to take my clothes off and he um, proceeded to uh, bite me all over my body mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, strangle me, uh, threaten me with death and um, sexually assault me, the whole works. So, um, yeah, it was obviously a completely um, surreal, uh, uh, hyper terrorizing. And I do remember at once for one split second in the middle of it all, just thinking, you know, if I get out of this alive, nothing will ever be the same again. And I actually had that thought um, and it was true. You know, um, so it was a very strange moment in my life, very surreal, unreal. Um, Did you think you would get out of it alive? And I was, I, I honestly felt, and I genuinely felt that there was a significant possibility I was going to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely wasn't sure I was. No. Um, you know, I'd never experienced somebody being so violent to me. You know, I, I in fact, I hadn't experienced violence and. And it was very clear to me that this person was capable of killing me physically, like, you know, because he was able to strangle me and I couldn't stop him. And uh, he was literally able to throw me, he literally picked me up one point and threw me. So, 
uh, it just didn't feel like there was somebody I could be physically, you know. So um, I just tried to, I think at one level, I kind of was quite detached and tried to remain as calm as you could in that circumstance. And um, anyway, um, he proceeded to kind of insist on dragging me out of the estate um, and kind of was still threatening me, still um, assaulting me physically um, and strangling me and stuff and hit my head against the wall, etc. And um, a couple of minutes down the road uh, was when we kind of came across, it, it was kind of a strange scenario, we kind of came to the end of a road and um, I just saw these two figures um, kind of coming over this little small hill uh, and I, you know, I, I remember having thought before that, you know, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if somebody else is involved, you know, so that was my instinct. Because yeah. um, I tried to reason with them, I tried to kind of say, look, if you just let me go, I, I promise I won't say anything, I will just go home, that's all I want to do. And did he um, respond to that, Ben said? His response was biting my hand, oh. so, um, you know, there was no reasoning with him, you know, there was... He, he was out of control. Out of, totally, totally out of control, like it was somebody on like the edge of their being, you know, they, they really didn't care. And, and he actually had said to me at one point, like, I don't care what happens to me and I don't care what happens to you. You know, so I just I felt there was no yeah. chance of just talking him out of it either. So I kind of felt a little bit like the only way I am going to get out of this is if somebody else comes and helps me. You know? yeah. So and that was my instinct. They did. And thankfully they did, yeah, miraculously, because it was like 4 a.m. or mm. so it was now coming up on, I suppose, 50 minutes to an hour. And um, uh, I, saw, I saw those two young men and uh, I kind of looked at them. And at one point he had said something about a knife. So for some reason, even though I hadn't seen it, I kind of feared that he had one. And I kind of was still anxious that, like, you know, just take it out and stab me, you know. And so I kind of looked at them and then um, they actually, one of them just shouted, are you okay? Because obviously I looked at that point very disheveled because my clothes had been off and then they were back on. Um, and uh, I just screamed no. And at that point, um, the attacker actually just ran off himself. He just ran like straight ahead. And amazingly, because I mean, maybe other people wouldn't react this way, but those two men actually chased him. Hmm. So they, they kind of said to me, are you okay? And I just said no. And then he ran off and then they instantly kind of began to chase him, you know. So I was actually left there alone. Um, but in retrospect, that's absolutely fine because um, what I did then was I just, uh, well, I, I, to be honest, I didn't know what to do, but I, I called my parents at the time on the phone and um, every parent's worst nightmare, never my own parent, I, I can only imagine, but... Um, and I said, uh, you know, um, I, I need mom to come and pick me up right now. And um, so my dad uh, sent my mom to, to do that. They both got in the car, their pajamas, and they uh, collected me. Um, and in the meantime, unbeknownst to me, um, those two young men apprehended him. They kind of caught him in a garden and held him down. Yeah. And actually called the Garvey, um, which was amazing. Um, because would you have recognised him, or what? what you, do you think he would have been caught otherwise? No, I don't think he would have been. He wasn't from the area. I had no connection with him. Like he literally just—he didn't even know where he was, yeah. which is kind of unusual. I think it was quite 
uh, very lucky that that all happened and that they apprehended him because not only because uh, for my justice, but for um, because he was a dangerous individual. And yeah. so, you know, so and you went you went to the guards. Yeah, I did. Um, in fact, I um, basically I um, got into the car with my parents and um, my instinct was immediately to go to the guard. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. And how was that experience for you in terms of how you were examined and you were, I suppose, you gave your statement? How was the whole, your treatment? Um, I have to say, overall, it was a very positive one. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I felt very, uh, from the get-go, very kind of believed by the guardian and there was no question. And obviously, Mm -hmm. I... I looked like somebody who'd been severely assaulted, so there wasn't any doubt really, but, um, you know, they, they did seem to care, is what I felt, genuinely. Um, and, like, it, it was a very strange day. I, I hadn't slept, and, um, you know, all of this had happened, um, and I had to give a statement, and um, then I had to go in to uh, get, you know, um, examined in a mm-hmm. hospital. And, you know, it's just, I, I remember actually saying, I think, to the, to the, doctor who was examining me like this doesn't need to happen I don't really need to be here like why can't I just kind of be at home you know Um, instead I'm here doing this and it's just yeah it was it was awful I just and I remember feeling a great physical pain you know with just aches and pains everywhere um so it was yeah it was unreal um Mm -hmm. but uh you know I, I knew I had to do it there was something within me driving me I have to do this it matters more that I do this and the immediate discomfort of doing it mm-hmm. um, because I'm, I, I'm from the get-go I just said I need justice I have to have it. Wow if we can just go back to maybe you might tell us what happened when the case was due and when it was going to trial and all of that and the support that maybe you got and, and what happened. maybe you might speak to that. Yeah um, well the, the actual period the time frame that um, you know of me that morning going to the guard the station versus when he actually was sentenced was about, I think it was about, um, say, 10, 11 months. Mm. So it wasn't actually that long, considering. Um, um, but I remember because my life had been completely and utterly kind of consumed by this, um, you know, it felt like a really long time because I actually could not think of anything else yeah. like, um, during the period. So. Uh, I mean, I remember um, this list back in 2005, so obviously maybe things have changed a little bit in terms of victim support, but um, I remember it, it, it being a constant battle to try and get a bit of information, you know, around um, what was happening. And like, actually the Guardian were being very helpful, but it's just, obviously they're very busy and it's, it's you know, kind of a, in, in some ways it really shouldn't be their job necessarily, but, um, I, it was just trying to get information about what what was happening next. When would something happen? And in, in the short term, I did go to some of the court appearances. Um, you know that that um, uh, the man attended the offender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually remember wanting to go. Um, and the reason that I wanted to go was because I wanted to see something happen. You know, yeah. I wanted to see some kind of external manifestation of something happening uh, to kind of, I suppose, recognize what I was feeling inside, which was absolute motor turmoil. So uh, that was kind of my motivation for going. Um, 
I was in fear at that time. I, I remember going with my mother and kind of we parked up uh, outside the district court. It was at that time. Um, and I remember kind of like sliding back in my chair because I was just, I, I felt that terror again, you know. Mm. But um, I went in anyway and, uh, you know, and kind of caught a glimpse of him and, um, you know, that kind of helped. But one, one of the kind of profound things that happened during those t- that time period that I think ultimately contributed to me going down the start of justice route was that, um, like, I actually remember seeing him, like, uh, standing outside in the car park after this, the sessions, you know, of court appearances. And he um, was standing and talking to other people. Mm. And something about that really struck me because um, in my head, I only saw the monster. Like, yeah. that's what he was to me. He was yeah. just this hyper-aggressive, violent monster. Yeah. And I couldn't couldn't think of anything else. You know, he couldn't be a human. He couldn't be, you know, a person that sat and drank tea. I just couldn't get my head around that um, thing. It just really stuck with me and grated and I think and it disturbed you. It was, you know, it was him and another guy, I guess. Yeah, it did. Because I thought, how can somebody be like that, but also be mm. normal? Yeah. Like, like yeah, so it. how can he be a monster and then stand there chatting to somebody like like a, an average Joe? Like, yeah. Exactly. And and you, you mentioned there the restorative justice piece. So maybe you might tell us about your journey towards the restorative justice and, and, and how that happened and where it brought you. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, eventually what, what, what did happen is that he pleaded, pleaded guilty. And um, in that time frame, I was able to go in and uh, give a victim impact mm-hmm. statement. And I remember before I did that, I felt very, very strongly that I wanted to do that because I felt a need to kind of say what I thought about what he did when he was present. Um, so I remember doing that and um, I, uh, but the thing is when I was delivering it, I, I could see him down at the far end of the court, but his head was face to the ground and, you know, there was no, inter- obviously there was no interaction. Um, I'm sure he would have been told not to even look at me kind of thing. But, um, so although I knew he heard my words, I didn't feel understood my words. He truly heard. Them. Yeah. So he there did. were layers in between there kind of blocking you yeah. from getting that true justice that you were yeah. you were looking for. Probably the criminal justice system was trying to separate us yeah. naturally. I mean the, the, the you know, obviously and, and probably of course they are, they're trying to protect you, but um and I get that, but at the same time I wasn't able to express how I really felt because of that. So even then, you were really aware of how much more you could get out of this process, the whole process. Yeah, but I, I actually, at that point, I didn't even know about the start of justice. I just felt a desire to confront him, mm. in fact, to speak to him, you know. Yeah. And um, and then uh, he got sentenced, and I kind of was happy with that. So by all accounts, I had the best experience you can have um, mm. uh, being the victim of a, of a sexual offence. Um, you know, um, but... You know, after the day in court and there was some relief and it was like, yeah, that's right. This is how it should be. Um, I still felt that there was something missing, you know, um, and, you know, actually years rolled by, to be honest. Well, um, what was his sentence? How long did he get out? Uh, he, he got nine years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, I mean, 
by by our standards, you know, I think that was yeah. that was good, and I was kind of happy with that, and kind of expecting something along those lines, and um, you yeah. know, so it was good, uh, and I felt that that was right. I thought I yeah. should go to prison, and um, not just because of what he'd done, but also to protect people and stuff. Um, uh, but then, like my life went on, and and I felt like people had just kind of dusted their hands off and said, you know, this is that's just that's as far as you can go. Yeah. yeah. But there was a big gaping hole, like in my soul, kind of thing. Still, um, yeah, can but, you talk a little bit about how how you were impacted? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the physical is only a, like the the most superficial, obviously, part. Um, you know, you take that a million times over what happens internally, um, because you know it was it absolutely shattered my whole perception of myself, of my reality. Um, Maybe I was a little bit naive, but I don't know. But um, it just totally um, destabilized me entirely. <laughs> just I, what's more profound than that? Um, I couldn't think about anything else um, other than being attacked. You know, if I go outside the door, you're kind of like it's such an irrational thought. But you, like, I, I literally thought somebody's going to kill me if I walk outside the door. You know, I still did do it, but it's kind of an instinct in the back of your head. You know, um, that. You know, obviously, I don't know why it happens, but all to do with post-traumatic stress. Yeah, you know? but considering what you've been through, actually, it was quite a rational talk because you had been in that situation. So, yeah. you know, I don't think you were naive at all or, or any of them things that you, like, honestly, I mean, anybody um, who's been through what you've been through would have been through. Yeah. So you were talking about the years rolling by. So the years rolled by and all this trauma is continued there and it's unresolved um, trauma. So... That was having an impact on you. So, so where did that bring you then? Well, I mean, I, I, I honestly will say I did everything I could to overcome that. Um, I did all the things that are advised, like go to therapy. Um, I, you know, did mindfulness, exercise. I did everything that I could think of. Um, but nothing was really getting there. And, and in fact, sometimes when I'd go to therapy on and off, I remember kind of saying to the person I'd be with like you know I'd love to say this to him or I'd love to say that to him and they'd say well you know what just imagine he's sitting in the chair mm -hmm. well, what would you say and yeah. I'd say but he's not in the chair mm -hmm. and because he's not in the chair it's mm -hmm. going to give me the relief that I need mm -hmm. um so you know that was all ongoing um and I moved away to a different country at one point um which I think helped a little bit because I just was able to somewhat, there wouldn't be so many triggers, you know, yeah, of, of places. And even just seeing a Dublin bus for me was a bit of a trigger, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was good. But then um, I moved back home just as soon as I had my daughter. And uh, it was that stage, actually, that she was being released from Britain. So um, I kind of... I just said something. How something did you feel at that point? Yeah. I, I remember just thinking something else has to happen. I don't know what it is, but something else. And then my, I, I one day, just one random day, was talking to my sister and saying, I would love to ask him, you know, uh, things like, um, did he intend to kill me? You know, because many years have gone by and, you know, if I, if I talk about it with my family occasionally, they kind of say, oh, well, you're lucky to be alive. And I'd say, well, how do you know that? Um, you know, maybe he wasn't intending to kill me. We don't know because yeah. he's not answered the question. Yeah. 
Um, and I also wanted to know why why he went why he did it. Uh, yeah. I couldn't figure that out. Why did he pick you? I imagine yeah that question for anybody who's a victim of a yeah. strange or sexual violence situation like that. I think that's probably the biggest question, isn't it? Did I wear the wrong shoes? Yeah. Did, did you I, struggle with that? Yeah. Yeah, well, it was just, you kind of begin to think, like, is there something about me that makes me look weak or, mm. you know, and I had that kind of in my head and could that, I had always thought of myself as a strong person, you know, yeah. and, and in fact, I always thought I was really strong, you know, um, and then all of a sudden this person comes along and just completely wiped it away. Dis disempowered you. Disempowered me to the extreme. And actually that was the perpetuating feeling I had, this disempowerment. And it just kind of, it ate away at my soul and my identity and who well, I your strength was really still there yeah. because you wanted the answers to those questions, you know, when you, you persisted. Yeah, but I didn't feel, you know, I didn't know that. I, I guess I kind of, I just felt um, weakened and, and I didn't, I couldn't understand, yeah, why somebody could think that I would be that weak, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there was all these things rolling around in my head and I couldn't get answers to them. And, and I also wanted to kind of tell him about, you know, I, I wanted to act, you know what I want to do? I wanted to show him who I really am, yeah. you know, yeah. that I'm not like that, that I'm not weak. Mm. Um, so I remember talking to my sister about that and she said, well, you know, that sounds an awful lot like something called restorative justice, you know? And then she began to talk about and describe it and talked about another woman who she'd seen in a documentary who had met me that raped her and, it just all the pieces began to fall together and it was just quite by chance, quite miraculously. And um, yeah, and, and she said to me, um, you know, to contact um, Marie Keenan, who works in UCD as a lecturer and knows a lot about it. So I, I really just contacted Marie thinking, you know, at least she could explain what it is and, uh, you know, why do I want this? You know, I, I, I thought maybe there's a, something wrong with me for wanting it. Um, and... Uh, I thankfully, Marie was, you know, very, always very approachable, always very helpful to me. And, you know, we met quite soon after I sent that email to her. And uh, then, you know, and she you really were in safe hands with her, weren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's an expert on the subject. So, I mean, if anybody could tell me what I needed to know, it would be her, you know. So, um, I remember going in and, uh, you know, within those, whatever it was, 50 minutes that we spoke, it all just solidified for me and uh i remember thinking yeah yeah this is definitely something i'm going to do you know uh at least it's something i'm going to seek you know because yeah. i didn't know about get to do it but i something i'm going to seek life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And it wasn't something that you were aware of before this, that it wasn't something that you were offered, for example. Oh, absolutely not. Not at any stage. It was just not, I mean, I didn't even know it existed. So I, I didn't even think to ask for it, you know, mm. maybe if I'd known, I, I might have, but I, I don't think I, 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 I just didn't get that chance, you know, so, um, so, you know, we thought of different ways to go about it. And um, because this person was on post-release supervision, the most logical step was to go to the probation service in Ireland, you know, and um, we did do that. Um, and lots of chewing and throwing and lots of, um, you know, uh, I suppose, <laughs> going around obstacles in a way. Um, but eventually, um, this uh, they did ask, this man the question, would he be prepared to meet with the person that you've harmed? Um, he very initially said yes, and then a week later he said no, and then a couple of months later he said yes again. Hmm. So, so you had the meeting, and, and, and the meeting is the subject of a film um, where you bravely play, play yourself. Hmm. So maybe you might tell us a little bit about what happened at the, the meeting. Sure. I mean, it's probably important to say that, like, there's a whole process around this yeah. and um you know i uh once i got in touch with the probation service i went to um the start of justice services in, in dublin and they kicked off the process and and the whole process involved uh, numerous kind of preparation meetings where we talk a lot about like what i wanted to say about you know what the room would look like um you know what i might be able to expect from him uh if he showed up yeah. And, um, you know, because they would meet with him as well, you know, um, not just yeah. me. And what um, were your expectations going into it? So really um, what I wanted to do, um, and it was really kind of by talking to those facilitators that I began to figure out that I, I had things I wanted to say to him. So I wanted to tell him what it felt like to be me during the result. Mm. I wanted to tell him about the aftermath. I thought he really needed to know that. Um, and I thought in doing that, it was kind of honouring what I've been through, you know, um, by telling the person that caused it what you've done. Um, and then I wanted to ask him some questions um, and get some answers from his own mouth, you know, because, I mean, we all have theories about why, um, you know, people act the way they do in these situations. Um, uh, and we know a lot of it's about power and control and domination and uh, misogyny, of course. But... At the same time, I wanted to get him to answer why he did that to me. And, and Alba, did you ever worry that his answers would be more harmful to you? Like, did that, like, would that ever cross your mind that he might say, look, I, I don't really care how you felt, or that he would just dismiss your pain? Did that ever worry you? Um, you know, something um, I kind of thought about all of the, the the possibilities of what would happen. One one thing about having those preparation meetings is that the facilitators will 
will be they should be very trained and they should mm. be able to present to you what you're likely to get as a response or yeah. um, obviously they can't you know account for any everything and sometimes as has happened in my meeting things are blurted out and um, said you know without any kind of warning or whatever so I mean it's always a risk but I think at that point I was so sure that what I wanted to say was so much more important than the possibility of him not caring yeah. that mm -hmm. it actually didn't even matter. Okay. Was, and yeah. you didn't expect an apology from him or or, or need it, I think. No, I, I absolutely didn't. I, I My whole thing about getting an apology was I'd already suffered. No, yeah. I'd been through it. There was no way at a word or anything is going to make that unhappen. So uh, at that stage, it was just all I need is for this kind of type of closure, for this humanization of him, for this uh, eradication of this fear. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was ultimately what was going to empower me again. Yeah. And what was going to could move help forward. remove this victim identity that I had. And, and do you think showing him that he didn't destroy you? is probably one of the biggest things that you got out this meeting for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the most important things. Like I, I literally said to him at one point, you know, I remember he said, you know, you're not so glamorous anymore mm. now, aren't you? Mm. Um, and I said, when you said that, you know, I knew that you were trying to destroy me, yeah. but I'm not destroyed. Mm. And, um, you know, to be able to say that to his face was like, you know, winning the lotto a million times over. Mm -hmm. it's, I have to say, it was really priceless. Yeah. Free. Yeah, was. And when you did ask him about that, why, why you said to him, why did you do it to me? Mm -hmm. And he firstly kind of said, well, I didn't choose you, but he saw you and he said you were beautiful, uh, but he wanted to take you down a peg or two. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, and that was it for me. Like, I think um, there was a lot of talking around the point, but when he kind of said, you know, I wanted to knock you down, kind of a peg it was mm. really like, um, I was like, yeah, that was what it was. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. He wanted to destroy me. Yeah. Mm. But not just me. It wasn't me, Alva, but it was yeah. me. Alva. Projecting all his stuff on you. Yeah. yeah. But he, but he what didn't. it represented in his head, you know? Yeah. And, and how brave of you to be in that film and play your part in that film? Um, when you did the film, did, did any of the things that you talked about in the original meeting, did any of them give you comfort again? Or, or how did you feel portraying yourself in that film? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I, you know, it, it ha the film was shot in what, 2017, I think, and uh, I'd had the meeting in 2014. So I very much processed a lot of it, yeah. you know. Um, so although it was it was quite an intense shoot, not that I've been on any other film set, but um, it was quite uh, intense kind of emotionally and, and everything for all the, the people in the room. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was so, um, what's the word, motivated to portray something as real and accurately as it could be. So I'd, and one of the main reasons, I have to be honest about me, wanted kind of saying, oh yeah, I'll be part of this, because I just had this fear that, whether it was legitimate or not, that like you know, you'd see somebody pulling their eyes out, and yeah, tissues everywhere. You and didn't want to be misrepresented in that way. Yeah. yeah, and it, it like it's dramatic, but in a real way, not in that kind of a you know, a, for the sake of entertainment way. Yeah, it's not not gratuitous. Like, so you wanted it to be real. You wanted it to be true reflection of what you've been through. Yeah. Um, 
And I suppose then after the meeting, you did get a very interesting phone call a couple of weeks after the meeting, didn't you, from his supervisor? Maybe you might speak to that. Sure. Um, so just like it was actually just the weekend after the um, the Monday after the, the Friday that I'd had the meeting and uh, the facilitator um, called me and she, she basically had said, you know, I just have something amazing to tell you and I, I couldn't wait to tell you. So I was like, OK, what, what was it? And she told me that, you know, um, he had kind of apologized for what he did and mm -hmm. to say, you know, he was sorry for the pain he caused me. You know? mm -hmm. So. I mean, I think I think it was it was very amazing, very profound, and I I obviously because I didn't go into the meeting expecting that, and yeah. it didn't act, it didn't really happen in the meeting either. But uh, uh, to get it was pretty amazing. But yeah. I always think, you know, it, to me, in some ways, it's more representative of how that meeting affected him than it did even me. So he went away and thought about it. I think yeah. it was a few days later he came back with that response. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah, because it, it obviously because he he had said to them, you know. Um, I'm not going to go in there like just saying sorry for yeah. the sake of it. Uh, you know, I'm fine. I don't want a fake apology. You know, so. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think that I think that was more real, and I think he meant it. Yeah, absolutely. And you did get to ask him whether he intended to kill you. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was that was an eye opener. Um, I mean, you know, I think his response was basically that. Um, you know, it wasn't kind of intended, but it could have happened. You know. Yeah. So I mean, I thought it was quite an honest answer. And, yeah. Um, I can't say I felt you know scared by it. I just that's it. That's a fact, and now I know, yeah. and there's no more questions about it. You know. And what did the whole process do for you? Um, the overarching thing for me was that it empowered me. I, I felt this surge of empowerment mm -hmm. when I came out of that meeting mm -hmm. and that I can't even describe. I think, and you know, sometimes when I think back on that meeting, even to this day, I still get that feeling. It's like, it's like that hole in my soul that I talked about at the beginning just kind of closed in because, you know, I felt whole and I felt empowered and, um, you know, just rebalanced our, the power there and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had gone in a victim, but we came out both human in that, if you know what mm. I mean. And yeah. um, there was no imbalance of power. And um, it was so deeply empowering for me to show him who I actually really am and how he'd really harmed me. And to be able to walk out of that, you know, absolutely with my head held high and um, knowing the truth. I mean, it was, it was really priceless, I have to say. And he acknowledged it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I heard Murray Keenan saying in one of the interviews that she did that she met your dad at the the meeting at the at the movie premiere, and she could she could she'll never forget how he said, "My child is smiling again." But you you started smiling after yeah. that after nine years. Yeah, after nine years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had been a really really dark time. Um, I definitely got some light out of having my daughter. That was, and, and I think in a way, part of you know part of having my my courage for going ahead with it was this kind of sense of I don't want her to live right. you know and I'm a girl and I don't want her to live with this overarching with her as well mm -hmm. and if it is it's going to be in a positive way and um you know uh I remember when I went home she was there and my dad was there and um yeah I think it was like I couldn't stop smiling so I mean I think they'd seen who I was really um, come back out, I suppose. And, and your empathy, I think, is 
just amazing. phenomenal, it's isn't amazing. it? It really is, Sarah. I can't say that. I mean, for you, for for a lot of people who have been victims of, of sexual crime where, you know, power and control is the main motivation, mm. and, which is man, I agreed it was. For for you to talk about him in, as another human being, you both left there, both human beings. I mean, it, like the strength that that shows. Yeah. Um, and I suppose there is some discussion out there, Albert, and you might speak to this, in some circles that will talk about restorative justice not being appropriate for people who have been victims of rapes, for example, because of the nature of the power play. Um, what would you say to the concerns or criticisms that people have around restorative justice being used in this way? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I would say, firstly, I understand the concern that I do. Um, but what I would say is, you know, I, I just talked there about like this overarching feeling that I've had throughout the years of being disempowered and kind of living in this perpetual state of being disempowered. So if somebody had said to me, no, you can't do that because it's not appropriate, that would have been somebody taking my power away again yeah. and in some yeah. ways victimizing me again. And, you know, I don't think that's right. I think, um, you know, when people have their power taken away, find ways to help them empower themselves. And it mightn't always be restorative justice. Yeah, it mightn't always be. Um, and might be other ways, but you can't restrict people's choices, you know, and um, they need to be able to make an informed decision. So as long as you have trained facilitators who really know their stuff and understand, I suppose, the complexities of sexual violence and, and all the dynamics that go with it, and uh, also obviously how to um, facilitate a meeting, um, I think, you know, risk is minimised. And, um, you know, that's what happened for me. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel uh, re-traumatised. There was none of that. Um, it was actually just letting go of my trauma more than anything. So, um, you, so you know, that's quite the thing. So you'd encourage anyone who does experience sexual or violent crime uh, across the spectrum, I suppose, to consider going this route? I would, I would absolutely suggest considering it, you know, finding out more about it, of course, as much as you can find out um, and informing yourself, but um, mm -hmm. so you can at least make an informed decision. And it may not be for everybody. Um, but um, I would always say restorative justice is mostly used in kind of, I suppose, youth circumstances yeah. for youth yeah. offenders. But I personally believe um, it, it, it hugely holds power for victims of crime. Like the greater the impact to the victim, the more the benefit they can get from restorative justice right. because yeah. it, it helps with that emotional piece, that kind of, ongoing trauma that um, the criminal justice system will not even look at. I mean, you are not, you are not in there mm -hmm. and you're just a witness. It just shows what you went through for those nine years until you had that meeting. Yeah. You never would have felt that transformative, you know, impact. Absolutely not. No, I, I kind of shudder to think what, you know, what I would have lived, of course, and I would have gone on, but um, my quality of life would have been a lot less. Yeah. It must be frustrating. Even now, that so many people still aren't offered restorative justice, and I suppose with your experience and, and as an advocate for restorative justice and these kind of opportunities for people to resolve their trauma, what kind of things do you think are needed within our criminal justice system to support um, victims of crime? Yeah, um, and and I I believe it's offered, it's, it's, but it, it tends to be offered in kind of pockets in certain areas of the country, that kind of thing, but. I mean, ideally, what would happen, um, and I've heard that it happens in countries like Belgium, um, where, you know, if you're the victim of a crime, you instantly get this, well, 
with the reports that you get a letter from uh, from the, from an organization who facilitates these meetings and they say if you ever want to start a justice contact us here uh, on this number and mm -hmm. that person um, gets to go away and um, you know go through the whole criminal process because I would always say like I don't think it's not it's not I don't advocate for it replacing the justice yeah, yeah. the course used in conjunction yeah. with yes um, in addition to in addition yeah. to uh, as an option yeah um, and you know they, they can either immediately seek a restorative meeting or in a couple of years time it might be better suited for them then and then they have the option to um, you know call up and ask for it at that point so I think it's it's about making people aware um, time this exists and it's it's possible it's an option and here are the benefits you can have mm -hmm. um, and kind of you know if they have concerns telling them about the safeguards and the things that you know that are there to over help overcome that um, and I think we'd be I think I think there would be more uptake than we think there would be yeah, yeah I yeah. definitely do yeah, uh, if that existed Absolutely. yeah so you're looking for it to be standard standardized approach yeah, I do. Um, I don't see why not. Um, it has been added into the um, youth criminal justice um, new strategy, but it hasn't, as you said, for, for over 18. So mm -hmm. it is something that needs to be looked at. It's there somewhere, but it's not It's not highlighted. And it's something that victims and survivors are entitled to under victims of crime legislation. So it is. To... Yeah, I mean, I know there is a unit within the probation service that uh, you can go to. But of course, you know, that's if there's a conviction and if there, a person is in probation. So um, I'd like to see it extend beyond that as well. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of academics are now advocating for it. Dr. Ian Matter and Manute is the He's very involved, which is great. And he's working with the Department of Justice. So we know there are improvements, but yeah. like a lot of things not coming quick enough, I suppose. Yeah. And, and Alva, just to finish up with, if people wanted to um, watch the film, the meeting, where, where would they be able to? To get it, um, sure. So there's there is a website called um, meetingmeetingfilm.com, um, and it is available to view there. Um, yeah. It's there's a kind of a video or whatever uh, you can you can get it there, uh, and that's really where it is. Um, obviously, you can contact. Uh, I think there must be con I believe there's contact details on that website for um, Tomas Hardiman, who's a producer as well. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go to the website, it's very mm -hmm. easy. Uh, okay. I think we can really get an idea of what, what it's all about then. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Alva, thanks so much for coming in on this miserable night. It's a pleasure. Thank and you. Uh, for going back through all of that really traumatic detail again. But thank you. We're really grateful. Thank you. Yeah, it was an honour to meet you, Alva. Thanks very much. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode, you can contact the National Rape Crisis Helpline on 1800 778 888 or Women's Aid 1800 341 900. Restorative justice practices for adults in Ireland are provided by organisations such as Restorative Justice in the Community and Restorative Justice Services. For more information, go to restorativejustice.ie. You can contact us on social media at Realize Untold. Our email address is realizeuntold at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to hear this season's episodes every Wednesday. You can listen on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.